This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. One state chooses to cut its U.S. history tests. Bad idea, right? Not so fast, say our teachers. Plus, should schools be held accountable for when their students miss school? Our teachers say, have you ever tried to get a teenager out of bed? Plus, we ask our teachers about parent-teacher conferences, the good, the bad, and the awkward. And as always, we end with kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade applications. And applications is? (laughs) It's kind of an enrichment type thing. It is a core class, but I build off of the other teacher's curriculum. A lot of writing and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. David Muhammad, what do you teach? Uh, I teach high school international relations and economics. Just say, what do you teach when you're not taking care of a newborn infant? That's right. (laughs) Congratulations. Life skills. You are currently (laughs) on paternity leave. Congratulations. Thank you. Ryan, so welcome back. What do you teach? I'm a K-5 speech-language pathologist. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Consider this philosophical question. If a subject is not tested, does it still matter? Educators and students at Virginia, or in the state of Virginia, may very well find out soon. That state, as noted recently by Washington Post education columnist Jay Matthews, is dropping state-mandated U.S. history tests in fifth grade and middle school and will soon eliminate U.S. and Virginia history tests in high school as well. The move is apparently the result of a state law passed in 2014 that ordered a cut in the number of tests students were given each year. Some educators applaud this move. The chief academic officer for the state of Virginia Department of Education told Matthews that teachers are, quote, eager to teach their content and assess their students in a more authentic and engaging manner. He says history courses, though no longer tested at the end of the year, will still be required to be taken by students and that schools will still be held accountable for students' performance in those classes. Matthews himself is skeptical. He notes in his column that Virginia students' scores on state history tests have for a long time been subpar. He says dropping the test entirely is part of a larger, quote, American tendency to make school as easy as possible for average students. He predicts that other states will soon start following Virginia's example, dropping some state-mandated tests to avoid the hard work of teaching challenging content and measuring student progress. He also couldn't help but note that this dropping of history tests comes at a time in American cultural and political life when history seems to be maybe more important than ever. This is an aspect of a much bigger story about standardized testing and a growing backlash to it. Of course, the No Child Left Behind law passed in 2001 started an era of education defined by standardized tests. Students, teachers, and schools evaluated on scores on those tests, mainly in English and math. In recent years, many parents have begun opting their students out of standardized tests. In 2015, USA Today reports more than half a million children nationwide were opted out of standardized tests by their parents. But as Matthew's criticisms might allude to, some will say eliminating tests entirely is going too far. Let's ask our teachers. Just for this particular story alone, we'll start with that. Do you agree with Virginia's move to drop U.S. history tests. 
David, what do you think? I don't feel like getting rid of the history test devalues history by any means. Mm -hmm. I think that history is important, and now more than ever, it's important for us to teach history. But we need to teach our students how history has affected our country up to this point and why um, certain groups of people in our country feel the way they feel. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that memorizing dates and facts... um, for a test. For a test. Mm. Um, I don't think that, that that necessarily shows the value of history. I think the value of history is really shown in the instruction and, and how we teach history. Yeah. International relations teacher, David? <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, if anything, standardized testing devalues the learning. Since this so you're, kind mo- of, you're kind of taking the argument and turning it on its head. A bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that since this move towards standardized testing, students don't see the value of the learning. It's just regurgitate the information for this test so that the district can get more money or the state can feel happy about it. But they're not really affected. The only kids in the schools who care about testing are AP kids and IB kids, at least in the school I teach at. And that's because it's tied directly to things that can affect them positively or negatively when they apply for scholarships and such. But standardized testing, um, it doesn't affect them on a personal level. And if anything, it's dumbed down teaching um, and made teachers not be able to really teach things that can be impactful because you feel like, well, yeah, I want to talk about, you know, maybe something that's pushing and urgent like Charlottesville, but I've got to get this curriculum in so that you can take this test so that I can look good and that my, my administration won't get upset with me. So that in itself has really affected uh, academics in a, a more negative way than the other so way around. Interesting. So a couple of things. So you mentioned the idea that standardized tests now kind of dumbed down the curriculum. It echoes something that I read in, I quoted USA Today in my intro. Uh, education writer Dana Goldstein was quoted in that article. She said, um, because the, the, the opt-out movement, parents opting their students out of, of standardized tests came about because, as she put it, you still had bad, dumbed-down NCLB, No Child Left Behind tests, that had high stakes for teachers. Uh, the era when uh, you saw teachers' unions and parents start to say there's too much testing, bad testing, and they're too high stakes. So it's this really kind of toxic combination of of high stakes with maybe not very good tests. Mm-hmm. And you say actually eliminating the test might um, it gives more, be, be better for the curriculum, ultimately. It gives more room for freedom. Now, I mean, first of all, the question is, who gets to determine who writes the test? Like, who writes the test? You know, and the tests are typically skewed a certain type of way um, that doesn't reflect um, the full gamut of learning. And I think, like, for myself, I teach elective classes, economics and international relations. And one of the things I enjoy about it is that I don't have as rigorous as a curriculum that's, like, standard-based, you know, I, I have, which gives me a lot of room. Because there's not a, a state test there's in no the end of your course. You know? Yeah, and, and our, for our school, at least, um, we, the, the social studies test has been pushed away for the past five, six years. Um, so we haven't had one. Um, and I've noticed the ease that teachers have felt, like, okay, we can kind of be creative and mess up. And, and not feel like, well, I can't take a risk and see what, how it works. Interesting, you know, that the, the, the history test has gone away for whatever reason the last five years. I mean, the state hasn't mandated is what you're saying. No. They, and you they, teach in Kansas. Yeah, they continue to say that, well, we'll maybe next year right. we'll table it. So how, do, how has that affected the students? From your observations, how has that affected the students' learning? They could care less if there's a test or not, <laughs> honestly. I mean, but, so, I mean, is it, is it ultimately better or worse that, that, that there's tests or not? Or, or is it, for us, it's better. Kids, the teachers. Are, kids are over-tested, man. And, I mean, you guys can probably speak to that as well. These kids get so many, like, assessments, that, and it stresses them out. And then, like, 
One of the best things our school did was take away ranking, class rankings. We had so many kids who have 4.0 GPAs or higher, and they still weren't in the top 10% that it made them look bad and feel bad about themselves. You know, and I mean, so there's so much pressure from society to be like, well, what is your scores? You know, and our parents were complaining this year because we only had four national merit finalists as opposed to the nine or ten we had last year. So what's wrong with our kids? Right. Nothing's wrong. It's just kids, you know. Uh, so, yeah, uh, turning to Ryan and, and Jamie, do you you want to respond to what David is saying? Do you How do students treat classes that are tested differently from, from classes that are not tested? Do you see a difference in how they approach those classes or feel about those classes? I think it's more of a feeling. You know, when we talk about the assessments, they just, it's a physical and, you know, you can see them just melt. They're like, oh, I don't want to take any more tests. <laughs> and so actually when I got my eighth grade writing position, I was super pumped because I didn't have to take a test. I didn't have to give a test. Your applications course. And now, I, yeah, exactly. And now my applications course, there is no such thing as applications anywhere <laughs> else. So I definitely don't have a, <laughs> a, a standardized test to stand up to. And that gives me the freedom to do monologues with my kids Mm. or to do fun, you know, hands-on STEAM projects because, and like David said, mess up. It's okay if I, if I, if something fails, I just don't do it again. You mentioned that a couple of times though. So why, why can you not fail in a class that's tested? Why, why is there a fear of failure on on the teacher's part, right? Like if you're teaching a unit, why is there a fear of failure? There's no consequence for a student to not do well on the test. On a state test. On a state test. It only affects the district and the teacher and the administration. Like, there's no pressure for them. Do you think a lot of people who are not in education real, uh, realize that? That I mean, I think maybe a common assumption would be that, you know, kids are being tested, so they're, they're taking it very seriously because it means a lot to them. But we, what you're saying is that, in fact, it means a lot to you, the teacher, because it reflects on your performance, on the school's performance, but that the kids do not care at all. Uh, I don't, I won't, don't, don't want to say the, care, the students don't care at all, but there's no consequence. Hmm. And, and the kids who are, are I don't want to say smart enough, but clever enough to figure that out, mm-hmm. finish the test in five minutes. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, some students do care. Oh, absolutely. Some students do take it it seriously. Absolutely. Ryan, what are you thinking? It's a hard balance. We don't want our students to feel really stressed about a test. We want them to go into it at ease and feeling like there's not a lot of pressure on them. But we do have to teach them that that tests are important. I mean, in order to get into college, we need to take standardized tests. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, all the way through adulthood, I mean, as teachers, we had to take certification tests. My issue, though, and I agree with you, Ryan, is is that it's hard for me to (laughs) tell the students that these particular tests are actually going to have a positive uh, effect on them. Because I don't agree with the questionings of these tests. And you're referencing state tests. Yeah, and there's even talk of... You have some Ivy League schools who aren't even looking at the standardized tests that are out there anymore. They feel like there's more to the academic experience that speaks to a kid's achievement levels. And it's hard to really have one test define where a student is um, as, as far as their development. Like, what if you have a school that's high in ELL learners, right? Like, for them, moving up a few rungs of performance points might be a huge achievement for them, but it still might not meet the score um, rate at which the state wants to see. It's hard to look those kids in the eye and say, like, yeah, you need to do this and take this seriously. And then they say, well, why? Uh, because our state wants to, we want our district to keep getting money. Well, I graduate in two years, so I really don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to tell them that. So we've talked about standardized tests in general. I guess getting back to the idea of cutting history tests from the state of Virginia, um, I guess more specifically focused on history, um, does it, 
and I seem to get this sense from your initial answers, um, does cutting history to us, will it, do you think it will harm those students learning about history at a time when, as Ryan mentioned, um, history is very important in, to, to know about in our country? I hope the elimination of these tests doesn't mean the elimination of the classes. Right. Um, I look at all the districts that I've worked in um, at the elementary level, and there aren't history classes. Um, there isn't specific time dedicated to history. Now, a lot of the time in the ELA curriculum, um, there's history included into those courses, um, but there isn't a lot of time just for history, and I think that says a lot about... And they don't get it until they get up to, like, junior high, high yeah, school. Yeah. yeah, there's no dedicated history time, and, and I think that's so important because what does that say about how our country values history? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, where, I mean, where do students learn history right now? I mean, of course, there are courses in high school, middle school, yes, but I guess beyond that, like, where are they getting their history from? To be honest, I don't know, and that's kind of scary. So to wrap up this conversation, I get this sense from all three of you that um, Virginia's decision to pull U.S. history tests, you seem to to agree with or think that it could be ultimately be a good thing. It might allow more freedom for those teachers to do more in their classes, absolutely. Yeah, let's let's move more away from memorization of facts and who the presidents are in order, and let's talk about what was going on um, in the history that shaped what we're doing today. Interesting. We'll have to monitor that situation in Virginia. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or follow them on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Our next segment hinges on this question. How much, if at all, should students be held accountable for their absences, and by extension, how much should schools be held accountable for how much school their students miss? These questions may soon take on extra urgency, as NPR reports. In the new federal education law, that's the Every Student Succeeds Act, states are asked to use five measures of student success. The first four are related to academics, things like annual testing, which we just talked about, and graduation rates. The fifth, though, is a wild card. And at least 36 states appear to be set to use as this fifth wildcard measure a measure of chronic student absenteeism. NPR drew that conclusion from a report issued by Future Ed in Education Think Tank at Georgetown University. It did an analysis of every state's ESSA plan, again, Every Student Succeeds Act, submitted to the federal government and found by far that chronic absenteeism is the most popular non-academic indicator states are using to hold schools accountable. The standard for what makes a student chronically absent varies from state to state. For instance, Hawaii defines it as being absent 15 days or more in a school year. Many states, including Missouri, Ryan, where you teach, define it as being absent more than 10% of the school year. Montana defines it as absent less than 5% of the school year. Many states in their overall ESSA plans give chronic absenteeism some weight on their school accountability ratings in the neighborhood of 10%. We should also say Kansas, where... Jamie and David Teach does not plan on using chronic absenteeism as its fifth measure. It will be using academic progress. Again, all these plans are in the course of being finalized and are not final yet. NPR notes overall, it is estimated some 6 million students nationwide are 
chronically absent. That is, they miss more than 10% of the school year. One of the authors of the Future Ed Report makes an interesting point while noting that there is a research-proven link between achievement and attendance. He also worries that linking attendance data to accountability plans will lead to, in his words, quote, what happened with test scores, a heavy hand with stakes attached. So, to my teachers here, is attendance how we should be measuring student and school success? So at the school that I currently work at and at several other schools that I've seen, attendance is part of the grade card. Um, And I don't necessarily agree, especially at the elementary level. Most attendance is driven by parents and whether they are able to get their students to school or not. I was going to ask, I mean, how how in control are elementary students? um, uh, I mean, how how much control are they in about them getting themselves to school? Very little, (laughs) very little, unless they're faking sick every single day. Um, Most of the time it's maybe a parent has overslept or a parent did not get up to get their child ready to school or they missed the bus. Usually it's tied to the parents and whether they're able to get their child to school or not. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, David, what are you thinking? Is is absenteeism a, a valid accountability measure for schools and students? I don't think so. I teach in a middle school too. Very little is in their control as far as, you know, unless they oversleep or unless, and we do have students who show up to third hour because they overslept. I don't think it's a fair evaluation of the school itself whether the students get there right. or not. I mean, to push, I, I imagine some people would say, well, there are things that schools could do to try to make sure students get to school on time. Well, and to, and to answer that, in my district, bus is free. Anyone can ride it. They just have to be there. Where, where I grew up, you had to pay for the bus. and Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I grew up in Johnson County. You have to pay for everything there. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, buses are free, and anyone can ride it no matter where you are. We have a rural bus that goes all the way out to the farms to pick the kids up. So, Do you find that um, you do – I mean, you just referenced it. You teach in a rural school district. Do you find that um, because of the distances that some students have to travel, that plays a factor in, in attendance? Most of the students that don't show up – are not rural students. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Most of our rural students actually have a better work ethic than <laughs> some adults. They have to get up at four in the morning and go, you know, feed the cows and, and do, you know, they have chores before school. And they they're have, not late for and school. And they're not late. <laughs> so who are the kids that, that are late? <laughs> uh, the students that, whose parents let them stay home or, or let mm. them sleep in. Yeah. Yeah. David, you, at the high school level, um, I imagine sometimes it's even harder to get kids to school. Yeah, I mean... Um, But I think what this is going to turn into is another case of the communities of people who are already struggling being punished for, you know, systemic issues. You know what I mean? So it's like, let's look at why kids aren't going to school. You know what I'm saying? And like what's keeping them from there? And a lot of times it's stuff that's out of their control. You know, you, you talk to these kids and. You know, I was I had to get another job and I was working late or, you know, um, I didn't have a ride or I missed the bus or whatever the reasons are. And, and so punishing schools, which most of these schools, most schools and public schools in the country have the best intentions and they're doing they're doing way more than just educating. Right. So it's like let's give the teachers in the schools another thing to be responsible for. As opposed to how about society maybe find a way to help support the schools, make it a community effort, you know, to to ensure that these kids don't slip through the cracks. So, so two-part question then. So who are the students that you're referencing that, that do have absence issues? You're talking about 
I mean, you seem to be re- referencing marginalized communities. Okay, number right. one, who are they? And then number two, what can society do to to have a more systemic response that you, that you're alluding to? In our school, the kids who miss the most are either those who come from broken homes. And again, I teach at a fairly affluent school, but kids who come from broken homes or who have emotional issues, behavior problems, or uh, maybe even um, drug-related issues, things of that nature. As far as society, I say that I just don't feel like, like we can't go knock on their doors. You know, so if we're offering busing, we penalize them. Or if in our school, if you miss enough school, you won't get credit. And so you might be put in a position where you can't graduate, at least not on time. What else can we do? You know, um, what else, what more do you want us to do? So don't punish the districts and and blame us when we've done everything. Ryan. There's a big push in our field about informing teachers and educators about students who have been through trauma and who are going through traumatic experiences. And and I see that with a lot of my students who don't attend school as regularly as as other students. And so we need to change our thinking to... um, what are you going through and what's going on? A lot of my students who don't attend school regularly um, are from lower income households. And so they might not, you know, be, be eating regularly. They might not have the lights turned on in their home. And so districts really need to um, build that community with their families and to see what's going on um, outside of school. Uh, to Ryan's point about talking to students about you know, their anxiety and what's bothering them and being more sensitive to their trauma, I guess, would would having a measure of chronic absenteeism as an accountability measure, would that facilitate that process or would that harm that process? Do you think being held accountable for your students' chronic absences, would that make you more likely to, um, you know, try to catch those kids who are falling through the cracks or, or would it just um, be harmful to that? One shift that I've really seen lately is um, a lot of districts are promoting uh, school attendance um, through positive initiatives. So, for example, my school last year did an initiative where if your student attended school at least 96% of the time each month, there would be a drawing for a um, gift card to a, a local grocery store. And so I think a lot of those initiatives really promote some of the issues that parents might have getting their students to school, telling parents, hey, bring your kids to school, and we might be able to help you guys out. We will end with a segment we call Ask the Teachers. Our listeners can chime in with questions, problems, issues, dilemmas they are experiencing at work. Consider it Dear Abby for Teachers. Our question this week from a listener Fall conference time is coming. It's probably already here for many of you. How do you interact with parents successfully? Do you have tips to entice the parents you need to see for conferences or tips to lead away the parents who want to stay and rhapsodize about their child? Again, this is this question, so it's probably an English teacher. Anything (laughs) Anything special or unique you do to make yourself available at conference time. So all questions about conferences, you just talking at the end of the last segment about uh, you know, getting to know your families and, and, uh, and parents more. So fall conference time is a especially ripe time to do that. So how do you get parents there? How do you, uh, how do you conduct conferences? We try to um, accommodate our parents um, as much as possible. We have some parents who don't have a working vehicle. So we'll have maybe an administrator go pick them up. We'll if they can do a phone conference, we'll try to accommodate them that way. 
Um, so really, we, we want our parents in our building. We want them to see how their child's performing, and we want to form that relationship with, those, with the yeah, parents. So, David, how do you reach out to your parents and how do you get your parents there? Yeah, our school has really moved to something different this year where instead of having the formal person to person conferences later in the uh, the quarter or the or the semester, we now have this incentive that um, if you get in um, so many hours of conferencing with parents, then you don't have to come on that day as a teacher. Oh. Um, because what they were noticing is that um, teachers like myself, I have to admit, you would get away from it and get overwhelmed, and then you wouldn't talk to those parents until that day of conferences, and by that time it'd be kind of late, and the parents would be like, well, why didn't I know? Even though we have a really good online grading system that lets parents know what's happening all the time, they can check it, some parents just don't do that. Um, So now we're incentivized. I believe it's eight hours total of conferencing. Um, So... I've been sending out emails since from day one, calling, you know, saying, hey, I want to talk to you about your student. So you're meeting or talking with parents on a more continual basis. Absolutely. You know? Like, this is what's happening at all times. And um, and I have to log that. So every every single phone conversation, email I sent, I log the amount of time that I spent doing that. There's been a couple of parents who have come in um, during my planning periods. And it's just me having to be actively on top of it. Um, I'm going to call a parent today while I'm on paternity leave just to talk about their grade. But initially I was annoyed by it, but I understand now the value of it. Um, And so that day, hopefully I won't have to even come into school. It's it's right before the Thanksgiving break, so it's kind of a nice (laughs) And I'm seeing that more more teachers are on top of it, like, i got to get these hours in. So we're we're more involved, and the, and the parents are more involved. Yeah, I, I believe that's what the economists would call a nudge. <laughs> yeah, you get the you, you get nudged to to do something. Um, so how, I guess once the parents are there, like how do you how are your conferences structured? Like what what have you found to be the most effective way to to structure and get your point across? I, I'll admit that oftentimes the parents that come in are the are parents of students that I don't need to see. Exactly, they're doing great, and I so. I, Oftentimes I'll start with either a compliment because it's like I wish I could have a whole class full of your student or I ask them if they have concerns because if if they're there and their student is doing well, then I want to know if they have a concern for their student. And then to allow myself to see more parents and not spend, you know, 30 minutes with one parent, I usually address whatever concerns they have and then say, okay, well, do you have any other questions? then I guess I will see you later. <laughs> yeah, do you, I mean, yeah, because you, you always have those parents who want to spend, you know, 20, 25, 30, mm-hmm. 35 Therapy minutes. Therapy sessions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are your su- suggestions, hints for cutting those off? I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> There's another parent waiting outside. I'm sorry. Ryan, David, how do, you, how do your conferences go? Man, conference time is stressful. I think for everybody, for parents <laughs> and for teachers, it's a little um, bit different. Is it is it different at the elementary level than it would be at the secondary level? It is, and I think the hardest part about um, elementary conferences is that that may be the very first time that a parent hears that their student might have behavioral or academic difficulties, mm-hmm. and so it, that puts a lot of pressure on teachers to be able to explain to parents, hey. Your student is having these difficulties, and so we need to discuss and we need to problem solve. Um, My recommendation is always to inform parents through facts um, because you can't dispute facts. And so present the facts of whatever 
difficulty or concern that you might have. And then I feel like after those facts have been presented, then you can start to have a much easier conversation about how we can um, fix the problems that a student might be having. To pose your own question for a future Ask the Teachers, you can go to the No Wrong Answers Facebook page. You'll find a shared Google Doc, what we call our community feedback form. You can click on that, and you'll be able to give feedback on recent episodes, share ideas for future episodes, and pose questions for an Ask the Teachers segment. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Jamie, what are your kids into? Cookie Clicker. It's the worst. (laughs) What is that? It's an app or a game, and all they have to do is press the space bar, and they're trying to get the most cookies. It's... It sounds really hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, but they will get in trouble with their phones just to play it. So good times. David, what are your kids into? Well, I've been on paternity leave, so my kids are into messaging me to ask if they can babysit. Because oh, you now have, a, yeah, you now have an yeah. infant. They just want to make money off me, and it's not gonna happen. <laughs> Ryan, what are your kids into? The current trendy behavior in my school is uh, squeaking your shoes on the tile floor. And so we have really high expectations in my school (laughs) where our arms are crossed, our voices are off. And so now they know that if they squeak their shoes, they can make their friends laugh and possibly get away with it. So this, so this is like, it, it gets around the, 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 the rules that are already there. Oh, you should the see them. Yeah. They can contort their legs and squeak. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> well, thanks to our teachers this week, Jamie Myers, David Muhammad, and Ryan So. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. That's it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. Remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.